Thank you all very much for being here. It's, it's quite a uh, commentary on the city of Naples to have a, a crowd of this size with a population of some uh, 40,000. Uh, this is a, an audience that's uh, comparable to the audience that we get in places like New York and Chicago and LA. So th that is a tribute uh, to this audience. I want to uh, just take your time for a couple of seconds and say a few words about the Cato Institute and then introduce our president. Uh, John Allison. I think I know most of you. Uh, for those I don't know, I'm Bob Levy. I live here in Naples, and I uh, chair the board at the Cato Institute. Uh, Cato has been instrumental in promoting uh, libertarian ideas such as Social Security privatization, the right to bear arms, uh, marriage equality, fundamental tax reform, downsizing government, property rights, drug legalization, school choice, uh, non-interventionist foreign policy, free trade, immigration reform and term limits. Uh, we vigorously oppose uh, infringements on civil liberties, uh, as well as Obamacare, bailouts, Dodd-Frank, campaign finance restrictions, uh, government control of the internet, most of the global warming initiatives, and as you're going to hear today, the abuse of uh, presidential power. Uh, you'll note that we stay away from the abortion issue, which can be a tricky issue for uh, libertarians. My personal view for uh, what it's worth is uh, the byproduct of my traditional uh, Jewish upbringing. Jews believe that the fetus isn't viable until it graduates from medical school. <laughs> we also avoid uh, campaigning uh, at the Cato Institute, although a number of our scholars have asked uh, why Hillary Clinton would even want to run. She faces new uh, Benghazi accusations. She has Karl Rove uh, speculating on her brain damage, and there are uh, rumors that she previously got into the White House uh, only by sleeping with the president. Um, of course, that last allegation is almost certainly a lie. Uh, rumor also has it uh, that uh, Joe Biden uh, would like to be in the mix. Uh, you can tell that Biden is personally involved uh, because the campaign posters say Biden in 2017. <laughs> On the Republican side, uh, Chris Christie has for all practical purposes announced his candidacy. The Marine Band is already rehearsing a new presidential march called Hail to the Chef. Christie was notably uh, agitated by a reporter's question at a press conference, and he responded by eating the reporter. <laughs> Many Republicans uh, were encouraged when George W. Bush said on Face the Nation, uh, there's a 50% chance that Brother Jeb uh, was going to run. Uh, then he added that there's an 80% chance that Jeb will not run. <laughs> For a brief period, uh, Republicans were even hoping for another try by Mitt Romney, who recently won the Nobel Prize for lack of chemistry. And perhaps most important uh, for the coming election was President Obama's uh, speech to Democratic supporters, and he told them, you've got to vote, 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 vote. This went on for about a half hour until a technician fixed his teleprompter. <laughs> it's 
So we are fighting uh, an uphill battle, no matter whether Democrats or Republicans are in power, but ideas matter, and that's why organizations like the Cato Institute uh, are indispensable. And thanks to your past support, we've nearly doubled our DC footprint so we can more effectively frame the political debate. Uh, but our plans, of course, go beyond just a bigger building. Uh, we want to make Cato more effective. Uh, we expanded uh, our staff in monetary policy, tax reform, science and technology, and lots more areas. Uh, you can rest assured that no organization uh, is more dedicated to the principles of liberty than the Cato Institute. And on behalf of our board, I'd like to express our enormous gratitude for your support, and I'd like to reaffirm uh, our enduring commitment to advance the cause of human freedom. And now it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce the president of the Cato Institute, John Allison. Uh, John started at BB&T in 1971. He became president uh, in 1987 and was elected chairman of BB&T and CEO in 1989. As you probably know, BB&T is one of the nation's top financial holding companies. Uh, during John's 20-year tenure as CEO, BB&T grew from $4.5 billion uh, to $152 billion uh, in assets. Uh, John was a distinguished professor in the School of Business at Wake Forest University from 2009 until he joined Cato. He's a Phi Beta Kappa graduate from the University of North Carolina with a master's in management from Duke and six honorary doctorates. Uh, he's also been inducted in the North Carolina Business uh, Hall of Fame, earned a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Banker, and was named one of the 100 most successful CEOs worldwide by the Harvard Business Review. Uh, not a bad set of credentials. Uh, John serves on five university-affiliated boards, and he's a frequent speaker at public policy events. His best-selling book from McGraw-Hill, The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, is a must-read, and his just-released follow-up, The Leadership Crisis and the Free Market Cure, is getting rave reviews. So please extend a warm welcome to the president of the Cato Institute, John Allison. Thanks, Bob. That was a very generous introduction, and I certainly am not going to try to follow those uh, jokes. I can't match that. Uh, I want to join with Bob and thank all of you for being here today. I know we have a lot of Cato sponsors in the crowd, and we very, very much appreciate your support. Uh, to our sponsors, I'll say that things are going extremely well at Cato. In fact, our revenue, our sponsorships are up almost 50% this year. Thank you very, very much in that regard. Um, I'm going to take just a minute and talk a little bit more about Cato for those of you particularly that aren't familiar with our organization. Cato is a world-leading libertarian think tank. Our mission is to create a free and prosperous society based on the principles of uh, individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. We really do believe in limited government. We think the government should stay out of your pocketbook, but we also think it should stay out of your bedroom. Uh, we do think government has a very important role, but it's a very limited role. That role is to protect individual rights, is to keep me from using force or fraud to take what you've earned, and to keep you from using force or fraud to take what I've earned. Uh, in that regard, we think government has three primary functions. One is national defense to protect us from the bad guys overseas. Secondly, we need police to protect us from our unhealthy neighbors. And finally, we need an effective court system <clears throat> to settle disputes so we don't have to uh, resort to violence ourselves. Uh, in our world, 95% of the 
regulations would not exist and courts would work more effectively and more efficiently than they do today. The fundamental reason that we believe that government needs to be limited is it has a special right. It has a right to use initiate force. You know, Walmart can beg you to come and buy their products, but they can't make you come. The federal government, the state governments, local governments can take a gun and put you in jail or kill you if you do not obey their laws. In fact, throughout history, after old age and uh, disease, governments have killed more people than any other source. Governments have killed hundreds of millions of people. Government is a very dangerous entity, therefore it needs to be limited and controlled. Uh, in order to accomplish this mission, uh, we do a lot of uh, different things. And over the last year, give you some uh, uh, thoughts on our results, we published over 800 op-eds in all major uh, newspapers in America. We published uh, 1,300 blog posts. We had 1,400 major media hits in te on television and, and radio. We directly educated uh, about a thousand students. We indirectly educated through our scholars, talking through the Students for Liberty and the American uh, 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 the Students for a, a Free Society, and through people like the Federal Association, uh, tens of thousands of students. And then our online outreach to students and young people impacted over 100,000 students. Um, we've had some great successes. I look at revenue production and outcome, if being from a business perspective, and on the outcome side, it's a little subjective, but we got a list of interesting accomplishments. Our, our constitutional studies group, which has been fighting to restore the Constitution now for 35 years, filed amicus briefs in 11 cases that made it to the Supreme Court and we won 10 times. The session before that we filed 18 cases that made it to the Supreme Court and we won 15 times. We have the best one law, law so, uh, record of any organization in America in recent times after a long struggle to help try to help restore the Constitution. Uh, our uh, scholar Michael Cannon is the leading author of the concepts that have taken Obamacare back to the Supreme Court where we, we think we have a reasonable chance of winning this time in the Supreme Court which will make a radical difference in the Obamacare uh, implementation strategy. We've been very active trying to defend your right to privacy against the NSA and the IRS. Um, our scholar that's going to talk today, uh, Dan Mitchell, has been very active for years uh, in Congress, mostly with Republicans, but somewhat with Democrats, arguing for lower government spending. And it will surprise you, but government spending, at least growth rate, has slowed pretty radically in the last several years. And we played an important role in that debate. We just published a book uh, called The Tyranny of Silence by Fleming Rose, who was the uh, editor of the original cartoon magazine that created so much commotion, all in the context of defending what we think is a pillar of Western civilization, and that is freedom of speech. And uh, we're very proud to have published that book uh, recently, and he will be appearing at one of our upcoming events uh, we're having in a couple weeks. Um, so we've been very, uh, very active in terms of impact and, and efforts. Underlying our policy work is what I think is a very important philosophical uh, premise that we have at Cato. We view ourselves as the modern defenders of the classical liberal ideas that made America successful. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each individual's fundamental moral right to their own life. 
Each individual's moral right to the pursuit of their personal happiness. Each individual's moral right to the product of their labor. If you produce a lot, you get a lot. Including the right to give it away to whoever you want to for whatever reason you want to. We think that moral prerogative underlies a free and successful society because it demands personal responsibility and it rewards rationality and self-discipline. Um, we are primarily advocates of liberty. That's what libertarians are about. You know, many people uh, believe in liberty, but I don't think a lot of people really understand how important liberty is. What we believe is that liberty is a foundation for both physical well-being, economic well-being, and spiritual well-being. In a physical sense, in order to be productive, an individual must have the ability to pursue what they think is right, to make decisions based on their understanding of the facts. If somebody makes you act like two plus two is five, you literally cannot think. And lots of government rules and regulations make people act like two plus two is five. In addition, all human progress, by definition, is based on innovation and creativity. Because unless somebody does something better, which will be different, there can be no progress. Innovation and creativity is only possible to an independent thinker. Somebody that thinks like the crowd cannot be innovative, cannot be creative, cannot contribute to human progress. That is why entrepreneurs are so important. Entrepreneurs take the ideas of scientists and engineers and turn them into reality. Without entrepreneurship, there's literally no progress. And we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this room. And what characterizes entrepreneurs is that they're independent thinkers. They're experimenters. Uh, they're searching for a different worldview. Uh, they uh, often fail and they try again. For every Google, there's a thousand failed Googles. For every Walmart, there are a thousand failed Walmarts. Entrepreneurship is a lot about experimentation, people thinking different than the crowd, thinking for themselves. And you have to be able to be free to do that. We published a book last year called Poverty and Progress. It looked at human well-being from time immemorial and from the evolution of the Homo sapiens 250,000 years ago until the late 1700s, human life expectancy basically remained the same. Quality of life may improve, but people weren't living any longer. And then there was an innovation, uh, a revolutionary idea in the late 1700s that first transformed Western civilization and now the whole world in terms of life expectancy and the quality of life. That uh, incredibly important idea was, was more significant than fire than the wheel. It was the invention of the rule of law, of individual rights, of free markets, of capitalism. And capitalism, free markets, the only system when people can innovate, can fail and try again based on their freedom, on their liberty. And capitalism, free markets, is a source of all human well-being and progress uh, is fundamentally dependent on that kind of liberty. In addition, liberty is essential for what I'm going to call spiritual well-being in the context of the pursuit of happiness. And when I talk about the pursuit of happiness, I'm not talking about having a good time on Friday night, although it's good to have a good time on Friday night. I'm talking about happiness in the Aristotelian sense of a life well lived. Blood, sweat, and tears happiness. When you're 80 years old, you can look back and say, man, that was tough, and I'm glad I did it. That kind of happiness has to be earned. You can't be entitled to be happy. 
To be happy, you have to have goals. You have to pursue those goals. You have to pursue your truth based on your beliefs and your values as a free and independent person. Being free doesn't guarantee you'll be, be happy, but if you aren't free, if you don't have liberty, you can't really achieve happiness in that context of the true pursuit of happiness. So liberty is essential for physical well-being and it's essential for spiritual well-being. So at Cato we do a lot of policy work, but it is in the context of what I'll call human flourishing. We're in the human, human flourishing business in that classical liberal sense it's so important to have a good life. So thank you very much for your support that makes that work possible. We couldn't do it without you and thank you for being here today. It is my uh, pleasure now to introduce Gene Healy. Gene is a vice president of the Cato Institute. His research interests include executive power and the role of the presidency, as well as federalism and overcriminalization. He's the author of False Idol, of Barack Obama, and the Continuing Cult of the Presidency. The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous uh, Devotion to Executive Power, and editor of Go Directly to, to Jail, the Criminalization of Almost Everything in America. Uh, Gene has appeared on PBS, uh, NPR. His work has been in many uh, uh, publications, including the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Gene holds a BA from Georgetown University and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. The uh, title of his presentation is The Forever War President, Obama's Dangerous uh, War Powers Legacy. It's my real pleasure to introduce Gene Healy. Gene. Thank you, John. Thank you all for being here. Uh, at lunch, you're going to hear from Tucker Carlson on uh, the subject of His Highness, the unconstitutional world of Barack Obama. Uh, for the next few minutes, though, I'm going to focus down on one particular feature of the president's unconstitutional legacy. And to start with, let me take you back to those giddy days when capital H hope was in the air and uh, the coronation was imminent. Uh, on October 30th, 2008, at a packed rock star campaign rally in Columbia, Missouri, uh, Barack Obama told the swooning, adoring crowd that, quote, we are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. So don't say he didn't warn you. Uh, I'm sure I don't have to tell this audience that when a new president comes to uh, Washington talking about bending the arc of history and uh, fundamentally transforming the country, you should, in the words of the old horror movie trailer, be afraid, be very afraid. Six years in, I think it's not too early to talk legacy, and the fact is that Obama has been a transformational president. But the most transformational aspect of his legacy is something liberals didn't hope for, something conservatives didn't worry about nearly enough, and something that nobody, maybe least of all the president himself, really quite expected. Remember, this was the president who was going to turn the page on the Bush era. He was going to be very different than 43, who used to go around saying things like, I'm a war president, and I'm the decider, and I decide what is best. Among other things, uh, President Bush insisted that he didn't need approval from Congress when he decided to launch a war. And yet, 
in the two major wars Bush fought, he sought and got congressional authorization anyway. And in that respect, Obama really did turn out to be somewhat different than George W. Bush. So far, Obama has fought two wars without any authorization from Congress. This is a president who's bombed at least seven countries, who's launched six times the number of drone strikes as President Bush, and who, as we're going to see, has turned a 13-year-old congressional resolution into a blank check for endless war anywhere in the world. Obama isn't just a war president, he is the forever war president. His most far-reaching achievement has been to strip out any limits on the president that the Constitution places on the president's power to wage war. Let me suggest to you that this wasn't quite what your earnest neighbor had in mind back in 2008 when he pasted that little Hope bumper sticker on his Prius. It's also curiously not what the GOP complains about when they complain about Obama's imperial presidency. But it's important. In fact, the limitations on the president's power to wage war were the most important feature of the Constitution, according to its architect, James Madison. In no part of our Constitution is more wisdom to be found, Madison said in, in 1793, then in the clause which confides the question of war or peace to the legislature and not to the executive department. Were it otherwise, the trust and the temptation would be too great for any one man. So the system then was designed by the framers to put a break on presidential war powers by giving the power to declare war to Congress. And that's basically what Senator Obama acknowledged back in 2007 when reporter Charlie Savage sounded him out about the limits of executive power. Obama said, quote, the president does not have power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve stopping an actual or imminent threat to the nation. And Obama was right about that. That was the framers' plan. Unfortunately, if you like that plan, you can't keep it. <laughs> Obama's uh, record on war powers has made that all too clear. Let's count the ways, starting with the uh, president's Libyan adventure, or Operation Odyssey Dawn by its military moniker. Uh, in his press briefing on March 18, 2011, as tomahawks rained down on Tripoli, Obama said, here is why this matters to us. Left unchecked, we have every reason to believe that Gaddafi would commit atrocities against his people. Uh, and as Gaddafi's forces against, advanced on the rebel stronghold of Benghazi, Obama warned that we faced a humanitarian crisis a situation where the democratic values that we stand for would be overrun and the words of the international community would be rendered hollow. Imagine that. Uh, one, thing, one thing we didn't face in Libya, however, was an actual or imminent threat to the nation. In fact, on March 28th, 10 days into the bombing, the president's own secretary of defense went on to meet the press and admitted that Libya was, quote, not a vital interest for the United States. On April 1st, a couple days later, the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel issued its formal legal opinion on why the president could attack Libya without congressional authorization. And it turns out, uh, per Obama's new understanding, 
that uh, the President does have the power to under, under the Constitution to unilaterally launch military attacks so long as, per the memo, they quote, serve sufficiently important national interests and they're sufficiently, quote, limited in nature, scope, and duration. That is, if the President thinks that getting involved is, you know, like, not vital, but, but important, helpful, uh, and he thinks we won't get bogged down for a long time, he can launch a, a little war, like uh, a microaggression. Actually, right from the start of the Libyan campaign, the administration flacks were very careful not to call the war a war. Their preferred euphemism was kinetic military action. As distinguished, I guess, from static military action, <laughs> kinetic in the dictionary means produced by motion, so it's pretty much your only flavor of action that's on tap. It's a redundancy. This is something like saying free gift, true fact, famous celebrity, or deja vu all over again. In kinetic military action, you could call this Orwellian, but it's more like Orwell filtered through Yogi Berra. Uh, anyhow, an important argument, part of uh, DOJ's argument in the April Fool's Day memo was that the president said Libya would be over in days, not weeks, so it was A-OK, -okay, constitutionally speaking. Actually, it took seven months, and as the war dragged on, the uh, administration faced another legal problem, the War Powers Resolution, passed in 1973 over Richard Nixon's veto, requires the president to terminate U.S. forces' engagement in hostilities after 60 days unless Congress has specifically authorized the intervention. And as the 60-day clock ran out, this time the president's own Justice Department wouldn't back him up. They had been willing to say in their original memo that hitting a country with over 1,500 airstrikes a month uh, didn't rise to the level of a war for constitutional purposes, but it's a kind of a tough ask to get them to write another opinion saying that it didn't even count as hostilities. I mean, you, got, you have to have principles in government. Uh, so Obama turned to the State Department, which coughed up a legal opinion that actually says, if you're bombing someone, but they have no easy, easy way to hit you back, you're not engaged in hostilities within the uh, meaning of the War Powers Resolution. And if you can make that kind of argument with a straight face, you'll go far in this administration. But if you think that was creative lawyering, uh, take a look at what the administration has done with the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, or AUMF for short. That's the resolution that Congress passed three days after 9-11, empowering the president to go after al-Qaeda and the Taliban, basically. Its key sentence is 60 words long. The president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th, or harbored such organizations and, or persons in order to prevent any future act of international terrorism against the United States by such organizations, nations, or persons. Well, here's where you really begin to appreciate Obama's full-spectrum dominance over law and even the English language itself, because those are the 60 words that ate the Constitution. 
That sentence now allows the President to target groups that didn't plan, commit, or aid the 9-11 attacks and didn't harbor those who did. It even allows him, without going to Congress, to go to war with groups like ISIS that have been denounced and excommunicated by the perpetrators of 9-11 and the targets of the original statute. In fact, under the Obama theory, the AUMF allows the President to go to war with virtually, at will, with virtually any jihadist group anywhere in the world. That one sentence has become the justification for building this sprawling archipelago of drone bases in places as distant from America's vital interests as Djibouti, Ethiopia, and Abadez, Niger, in the Sahara Desert. In a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing a year and a half ago, Senator Lindsey Graham, who has no problem at all with any of this, by the way, asked a top State Department official, does the President have authority under the AUMF to put boots on the ground in the Congo? Answer, yes, sir, he does. Boots on the ground in the Congo, drones over Timbuktu. It sounds like something that uh, Rand Paul would blurt out in a fugue state 11 hours into a filibuster, but it's actually the Obama administration's position. In fact, their interpretation of the AUMF is so broad that they won't even tell you how broad it is. Obama's legal team has fought very hard to conceal from the public Justice Department memoranda containing not sources and methods, but the actual legal arguments for why it thinks it has the authority to put American citizens on a kill list. In Freedom of Information Act litigation on that very point, uh, the administration argued in court that, quote, the very fact of the existence or non-existence of such documents is itself classified. He could tell you, but then he'd have to kill you. I said at the outset that Obama has bombed at least seven countries, and that phrasing was deliberate. Last year, when the fact-checking organization PolitiFact tried to get an exact number, they couldn't. There are seven confirmed, but it might be eight. It looks like he bombed the Philippines in 2012. We can't be sure. We can't be sure because in the most tr transparent administration in history, who we're at war with is classified. The Obama administration has repeatedly refused to publicly identify the groups that they claim the power to target. Uh, at a, another Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing in May last year, uh, the Pentagon's general counsel told Senator Bob Corker that, quote, the, the groups that we've not identified as groups we are currently operating against and the intelligence and applications of the standards under the AUMF is not something we are prepared to discuss in an open session. Translation, in the administration's view, Congress shouldn't publicly debate where and with whom we go to war, and the rest of us are on a need-to-know basis, and we don't need to know. This Saturday, it will be six months since President Obama launched our latest war in the Middle East. It turned out to be easier to start the war than it was to come up with a name for it. For the first three months, it just went by the placeholder operations in Iraq and Syria. Wall Street Journal actually started running a Twitter campaign, hashtag Operation Name. 
finally, the Pentagon, uh, sometime I think in October, settled on a handle that they'd initially rejected as, quote, kind of blah. Uh, it's Operation Inherent Resolve, but as a friend of mine wisecracked, it might be better with the one-letter change to Operation Inherent Revolve. Um, now, to be fair, uh, Obama is hardly the first president to wage war without congressional authorization. But it ought to tell us something that, just like with hurricanes, we're, we're running out of cool names for wars the presidents launch. Uh, the presidential wars we grew up with, things like Grenada, Panama, even Kosovo, these are comparatively short and sharp, uh, geographically limited, time-bound departures from a baseline of peace. It's, that's no longer the case. We've gone permanently kinetic. Obama has transformed America, all right. He's transformed our constitutional baseline from peace to near permanent war. And our kinetic odyssey may have only just begun. Uh, Obama administration officials admit there's no clear end in sight to the war on terror. The Pentagon says it will go on for, quote, at least 10 to 20 years more. It's possible then that the AUMF will serve as the basis for Chelsea Clinton's kill list in 2033. <laughs> and you might wonder how, 30 years on, the powers the AUMF granted uh, could manage to outlive everyone who planned, aided, or committed the 9-11 attacks or harbored those who did. And you may ask yourself, whether it's even constitutionally possible for one Congress in 2001 to delegate the war powers of all Congresses to come, but asking those kind of questions is the sure sign of an uncooperative attitude. The droning will continue until morale improves. Luckily, we've got Congress, led by men like John Boehner, who recently gave a Braveheart-style press conference denouncing the president for acting like a king. We will not stand idly by as this president undermines the rule of law and places lives at risk, he said. The House will, in fact, act. Oh, boy, it's profiles and courage time. Yeah, actually, he was talking about the president's plan to unilaterally defer deportation for illegal immigrants. Uh, the House is going to do something about that, they say. Uh, Boehner is also suing the President for not implementing Obamacare mandates fast enough. But when it comes to President Obama's latest illegal war, Boehner's in no particular hurry. I expect we'll have hearings on that, he said recently, and that we will, in fact, have a debate and vote on it. The timing uh, yet to be determined. Lately, Boehner's taken a whining that the uh, President hasn't given him the first draft of the new AUMF, so it's like he expects Congress to do all the paperwork itself. I'm sorry, uh, establishment conservatism is enough to drive me nuts. Look, there are important rule of law issues with Obamacare waivers and immigration waivers. Boehner is not wrong about that. There are genuine abuses of presidential power with recess appointments, the IRS scandal, and I don't know, maybe, maybe even Benghazi. But it would be nice if at some point during Fox's wall-to-wall -wall Benghazi coverage, even once somebody paused for reflection to ask, hey, how did we end up there in the first place? 
Well, that's right, through an illegal war in a country that wasn't a vital interest of the United States, and that's now even more of a basket case and terrorist cesspool than it was before we started bombing it. And if Boehner and the GOP leadership are going to bang on about presidential lawlessness, it would be nice if they gave a moment's notice to the most flagrant and dangerous and imperial aspects of that lawlessness, like the president's argument that seven months of regime change bombing isn't a war, it isn't even hostilities, like his argument that three days after 9-11, Congress delegated its war powers in perpetuity, one Congress, one vote, one time, and that the power, the president now has the power to conceal from the people and the people's representatives basic democratic questions like who we're at war with. It would be nice if Congress did their job. Because Madison was right, the power to decide the question of war or peace is the most important responsibility they've got. And since war and government growth have moved in lockstep throughout American history, it's among the most important checks that the Constitution places on things that conservatives are supposed to care about. War is the health of the state, and it's also the lifeblood of the imperial presidency. War, Madison said, is the true nurse of executive aggrandizement. In war, the public treasures are to be unlocked, and it is the executive hand which is to dispense them, the executive patronage under which they are to be enjoyed. It is in war, finally, that laurels are to be gathered, and it is the executive brow they are to encircle. His Highness, indeed. Madison also warned that no nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Was he right? We're going to find out. Uh, we're running that experiment right now. And we're going to keep running it unless conservatives and liberals decide to get their priorities straight and do something about it. Thank you. I think we maybe have time for a couple questions. Bueller? Bueller? Oh, um, back there. I'm having a hard time seeing. Ben Backrack, I'd like to uh, just ask what would you recommend the liberals and conservatives do about it? Well, I think uh, there's a debate coming up. It's amazing. This war, uh, the latest war has gone on for almost six months, and we didn't get the first inkling of a congressional debate until December in the lame duck uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, supposedly, we are going to have a vote on an AUMF for the war against ISIS. Uh, in what came out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last December, uh, it was a package deal to sunset the original AUMF, this uh, congressional resolution that has become a blank check for endless, uh, endless war for uh, going on 14 years. Uh, I think that the, the most immediate thing they can do is address the current war, uh, repeal the Iraq war resolution, which the uh, president has also cited as justification for another war with Iraq, you know, 12 years later, uh, sunset the original authorization for the use of military force and 
return us to something like, you know, the President said in his prior State of the Union address, the 2014 one, that America must move off a permanent war footing. Well, when? Uh, I think this debate that is coming up now uh, presents us with an opportunity to start reeling in some of the authorities that Congress has so cavalierly delegated to the President and that the President has warped even beyond the original delegation. Anyone else? Thank you. Um, what about the Pentagon's budget, the defense budget? Um, the President's all over the charts in terms of whether he's for cuts or increasing the budget this fiscal year. Could you speak to the issue of how he's maintaining all these wars around the world and yet pretending he's not a, a hawk? <laughs> it is funny because I think a lot of the conservative critique of uh, Barack Obama is um, buys too much into the rhetoric. Uh, you know, the, uh, Dinesh D'Souza did a movie a couple years ago where, uh, you know, he said the president sympathizes with uh, these people as freedom fighters. Well, he's sure killing a lot of them uh, at a higher rate than George W. Bush. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think he is at least as much of a war president as Bush was, in some cases in areas that where we do actually need to uh, address threats, um, but he wrings his hands about it and uh, has a guilty conscience about it so people uh, uh, don't notice these remote controlled wars that are going on in the background. Uh, look, the Pentagon's budget, you know, I don't think uh, we should look at, uh, when we uh, look at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, when, when uh, libertarians and conservatives look at uh, budgetary growth in, in other areas, uh, you know, we expect that there are public choice forces at work that are growing that budget. I don't think it should be any different when, when it comes to uh, soldiers and generals. Uh, a lot of what's happened that it's allowed uh, Obama to, uh, to carry out these wars, uh, Libya, in comparison with Iraq, was a comparatively low-cost war, and uh, he just took it out of spare change in the Pentagon's budget. But as these things go on, uh, and as the decades grind on, and as we have a drift towards permanent war, uh, it's a full employment project for defense contractors and for the Pentagon. Uh, and I think we, if we want to spend less, we need to do less. And I think we uh, need to do less to be safer. Thank you all. Thanks, Gene. It's uh, now my pleasure to introduce uh, Dan Mitchell. Dan is a senior fellow at Cato and a top expert on tax reform and supply-side tax policy. Dan is a strong advocate of a flat tax and international tax competition. <clears throat> uh, prior to joining Cato, uh, Dan was a uh, senior fellow with the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Sen Senator Bob Parkwood and the Senate Finance Committee. He also served on the 1988 Bush Quail Transition Team and was Director of Tax and Budget Policy for Citizens for a Sound Economy. Uh, 
Dan's articles can be found in many publications, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Investors Daily, and the Washington Times. He's also often on uh, radio and television. I'm sure many of you have seen him. Uh, he holds a bachelor and master's degrees in economics from the University of Georgia and has a PhD in economics from George Mason University. And I'm very interested in hearing his talk. It's on the impact of the 2014 elections on policy, which is something I'm personally interested in. So, Dan, glad to have you. Well, thank you, John. Uh, in my presentation, I want you to keep two things in the back of your mind. Trend lines matter, and our goal isn't balancing the budget, it's shrinking the size and scope of the federal government. Uh, and of course, I'm doing this in the context of, does the 2014 election matter? Well, in the short run, no. Not at all. Obama can veto and will veto anything that would restrain the growth of government. Not maybe anything. I mean, he, he did sign the Budget Control Act that gave us the sequester, but it's not like he wanted that. And maybe we'll have some fights like that. But by and large, nothing big is going to happen for the next two years. But the election could be meaningful in the long run, assuming that the rhetoric of some of the candidates who won in 2014 is actually backed up by real world actions and behavior. We'll see whether that happens. Uh, and sometimes these guys do get corrupted over time. Uh, the class of 1994 started out very good. But by the time we got to the Bush years, a lot of those guys who ran saying Washington was a cesspool, they eventually decided it was a hot tub. So maybe they start out believing in smaller government, but then they sort of get used to the way Washington operates, and they sort of get, they get co-opted. It's sort of, you know, any Star Trek fans, you know, the Borg, they get absorbed into the collective mentality of D.C. Uh, so when I'm looking at what might happen as a result of the 2014 elections, I'm really making a political guess. Do these guys actually believe in less government? And will there be a president in 2017 and beyond who will enable them all to behave in ways that will give us some progress? And remember, I have a very modest definition of progress. Remember I said trend lines matter? If government is growing at 2% a year and private GDP in nominal terms is growing 3 or 4% a year, that's progress. Now as a libertarian in my fantasy world, I want to dismantle 90% of the federal government overnight. But in the real world of Washington, if we can simply have government grow slower than the private sector, good things are going to happen. Uh, now first, let me give the bad news. If we don't do anything, really, really awful things are going to happen. We're going to turn uh, into Greece. It's all a question of demographics and entitlements. Uh, and so if we don't do anything, if we just let things fester, we're going to have a crisis. And so then the question is, okay, let's all stock up on bottled water, canned goods, and ammo. And I want to show you some data from different international bureaucracies to underscore this. A couple of years ago, the Bank for International Settlements did a study looking at long-term debt in various countries. Now, I don't like the fact that they focused on long-term debt. That's the symptom. The underlying problem that they should be focusing on is the relentless growth of government. But nonetheless, this is the way they did it. But look at these charts looking at debt and realize that the debt is just a proxy for the growth of government, which is what we should care about. And this is what the Bank for International Settlements uh, projected for the U.S. between 2011, when the study came out, and 2040, which isn't that far away. The red line is the baseline if we do nothing. 
you're going to see 450% of GDP. That's the debt level. Now, Greece got in trouble at 115% of GDP. Now, I suspect we could go a lot higher than Greece because we're sort of the world's reserve currency. Japan's at 200% of GDP, and they haven't collapsed yet. Uh, so I don't know where the tipping point is, but nonetheless, that chart should worry us. Here's a chart from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. No one's going to be able to read it from out there, but understand that the higher the bar is for our country, that's bad because it's a measure of how much fiscal change you have to undertake simply to stabilize your debt levels by the year 2030, which, by the way, that's only 15 years from now. You don't want to be on the far right side of the graph because those are where the bars are very high. Greece is on the far right. Japan's right next to it. Portugal's right next to them. Which country is fourth worst? The U.S. Worse than France. And this is just a 15-year prognosis. So that should give you an idea of the trouble that we're in. Here's a chart from the IMF. Again, no one's going to be able to read it. And sometimes the people at Cato say, Dan, you've got to have charts people can read. All you need to understand is that on the vertical axis is the growth in government just because of age-related programs. That's the vertical axis. The horizontal axis is the amount of fiscal consolidation you have to undertake. Sort of, sort of very similar to that last chart we just saw from the OECD. So the last thing you want to be is in the upper right quadrant of that chart. Guess who, see that? United States, you probably can't read it. Uh, but right there, that's the United States, the upper right quadrant. That's very, very bad news. So in other words, there actually is a genuine problem. Obama says, oh, the deficit's come down for a couple of years, so now we're going to do more spending. No. I mean, that's sort of like, okay, you have cancer, oh, a little bit of remission, now you can start smoking again or something like that. We do have a real long-run problem. And this cartoon from Chuck Assay sort of describes it. The taxpayers have been completely drained by all the different interest groups that are clamoring for more and more handouts. And, and as John said in his presentation, it's, 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 it's a spiritual thing or a cultural thing or an ethical thing to the extent that people think it's perfectly okay to live off their neighbors. Uh, that's sort of that dependency mindset. That's why I think Greece fundamentally will never be saved. And we saw that with their most recent election, where they put the crazies in, who said, hey, let's double down on failure and somehow hope that the Germans and the Dutch and others will bail us out forever. But let's, let's stick to the US context, because now I want to explain there is some hope. And actually, one of the reasons I have hope is because of what's happened in Europe. I spend a lot of time on the Hill. It's sort of like, you know, I, I deserve a merit badge, a libertarian merit badge, for actually going into the belly of the beast and trying to con convince these guys not to do what they like doing. And all during the Bush years, when they had the no bureaucrat left behind bill, the corrupt farm bills, the pork-filled transportation bills, the Medicare Part D, uh, the, the TARP bailout, I kept going up to the hill and saying, guys, you shouldn't do this. And every so often, some of these members would say, yeah, boy, I, I wish I hadn't voted for that, but it was a party loyalty thing. And they said, well, we have to vote for this so we can stay in power, because then in the future, if we keep power, we'll finally do the right thing. Uh, and, but of course, they kept doing the wrong thing. Well, in the last couple of years, especially since the, the European fiscal crisis, I think there's been a change. They really do now, I think, understand you can't keep going in the wrong direction forever. Now, of course, you do have people on the left who say, no, you can go in the wrong direction forever so long as you keep raising taxes by a sufficient amount. Uh, but I also think that 
There's a growing appreciation based on what's happened in Europe, where all these countries, their first instinct, their first response was to raise taxes, and that, that just simply drove what, what was left of their private sectors into the ground, while government kept growing and growing. So I think that if, if you sort of understand you can't raise taxes, and you sort of understand that you reached a point where you can't increase spending anymore, then maybe by process of elimination, they'll conclude you have to do the right thing. And what's the right thing? Making sure government grows slower than the private sector. Now, I just looked at the new data from the Congressional Budget Office. Just came out last week. Nominal GDP is projected to grow by 4.3% a year. So all we really need to do, now again, this is very modest, not what my fantasy world is, but all we need to do is to make sure government grows by less than that and we move in the right direction. Of course, the real challenge is, is how do you maintain and sustain uh, fiscal discipline in a town where people like government to grow? My friend Art Laffer is famous for the Laffer Curve. Well, I'm trying to make myself famous, so I've created Mitchell's Golden Rule. This is what should be the driving force for good fiscal policy. Not trying to balance the budget, because then the politicians simply say, oh, you're right, let's raise taxes. We can balance the budget. In reality, that never works. They increase spending. But nonetheless, if you convince them, and this is one of my goals when I go up to Capitol Hill, if you convince them that really the whole thing is to focus on those long-run trend lines, I think we can make progress. And, and it actually has happened. During the Reagan years and Clinton years, government grew slower than the private sector. There are all sorts of countries that have had multi-year periods of spending restraint. Switzerland, I think, is a great example because their voters put in something called the debt break that's really a spending cap. Uh, and, and actually, over the last five years, we, we have made progress in DC. First, here's a table. Uh, you won't be able to read it. And again, I get scolded sometimes for putting this table up. But I simply want people to see that there are about 15 countries that by holding down the growth of government for several years in a row, they've made huge progress in re reducing government as a share of GDP, and they've made huge progress in dealing with the symptom of too much government because their debt and deficit levels have come down as a share of GDP. Now, I put this up because all the time when I'm debating my left-wing friends, I say, show me your list of success stories for higher taxes. Show me any country anywhere that has ever stabilized its finances and boosted its economy with higher taxes. They don't have a list like this. And by the way, feel free, I'll, I'll be happy to send you the presentation, all the data behind this. They don't have the success stories we do. And a lot of, I think, our ability to win these battles over the next several years is to convince people, not on an ideological basis, because a lot of people don't even understand what that means, but on a practical basis, if you simply have no other goal other than stabilizing your finances, the only thing that works is controlling the growth of government spending. And this list of countries shows how successful it is when you do that. Uh, now, here's what's happened in the US. This is a chart from 2000 to 2014. You can see all during the Bush years and Obama's first year, government spending was growing. But for the last five years, at least from 2009 to 2014, we had a spending freeze. So sometimes we get very frustrated. We have all these fights over debt limits and government shutdowns and sequestration and Budget Control Act. It actually made a difference. Now, of course, because spending skyrocketed so much in 2009 with the corrupt uh, TARP bailout and the so-called stimulus, you know, in some sense, it's like you know, losing weight after going on an on a eating binge for, for two months or something like that. But nonetheless, 
That is progress compared to what the people in Washington wanted. Here's a chart that I think shows it even better. In 2009, the burden of federal spending was 24.4% of GDP. In 2014, 20.3% of GDP. That's the biggest five-year drop since the end of World War II. Now again, it's not what I want at the end of the day. I want the federal government to be back down to 3% of GDP, which is where it was for much of our nation's history. But I'll gladly take 24.4 down to 20.3 compared to the alternative of what Obama wanted in his various budgets during that five-year period. So this is where we are right now. What do we need to do? Well, I already mentioned that nominal GDP is supposed to grow 4.3% a year. Well, revenue is supposed to grow 4.7% a year. So obviously, have government grow slower than either 4.3 or 4.7. If you're focused on balancing the budget, you want government to grow slower than revenue. If you're focusing on shrinking the burden of government spending relative to the private sector, you want government to grow slower than GDP. Well, it turns out that if you simply freeze spending where it is right now, in other words, what, what we did for those five years between 2009 and 2014, if you freeze spending, we balance the budget by 2018. If you allow government to grow at the rate of inflation, you balance the budget by 2020. Now again, I never go to sleep or wake up fretting about balancing the budget. But since a lot of people in Washington do fixate on that, at least as a proxy, it's very important to understand that modest spending restraint gets you there very quickly. This is a chart again, it's all you know, too many lines, but, but the, uh, the purple line that starts at the bottom is the trend line projection for revenue over the next 10 years. And where those, all those lines come together is where spending is right now. And it simply shows how fast you balance the budget if government grows 0% a year, 1% a year, 2% a year, or 3% a year. In other words, you don't actually have to cut spending. I would like to. But when you have all these politicians in Washington saying, oh, we can't balance the budget without higher taxes because that would require savage and draconian cuts. I would like savage and draconian cuts. But they're using a definition where if spending grows by this much instead of this much, that's a cut. It's sort of like you, you, you go to the store, you blow a lot of money, you come back, you tell your spouse, hey, I saved money because I spent 2000 because stuff was on sale, it otherwise would have cost 4000 That's literally how they do budgeting in Washington. So whenever you hear politicians saying, oh, you can't balance the budget without savage cuts, no. You actually can balance the budget very simply by simply restraining the growth of government spending. Now, I'm giving you the optimistic scenario about how modest spending restraint can get us in the right direction. There are, of course, those who want government to grow faster. And after that progress we had for five years, 2009 to 2014, the, the bad news is, is spending's rising 4% this year. Now, that sort of holds us steady because that's about what nominal GDP is growing. Uh, so it's not like we're moving rapidly in the wrong direction. But you look at Obama's budget, <clears throat> bad news. He wants government to grow more than twice the rate of inflation over the next 10 years. Here's a chart showing you know, the, the flat part is what's happened to government over the last five years. And then there's what Obama's proposing for the next 10 years. Sort of the express route to becoming Greece. So if we know that progress simply involves restraining the growth of government spending, well, how do we actually do it? Well, in the long run, you really do need to reform the entitlements. And that's where the work of people like Michael Cannon and Mike Tanner at Cato are so critical. 
Instead of politicians going for short-run gimmicks like means testing and price controls, the debate now is over fundamental good structural reform of these entitlement programs. Because the health care issues are the, real, are the real problem. Of course, it'd be good to reform Social Security as well. And you can reform Obamacare by basically block granting a lot of the subsidies, which is what they're proposing on Medicaid. So, so even if we don't win that Supreme Court case, because sometimes the justices don't really care what the law says, uh, even if we don't win that case, it actually is possible to make some progress. Uh, now, here's the, here's the thing that gives me some reason for optimism. Politicians normally hate doing the right thing because it involves saying no to interest groups. But for the last four years in a row, the House of Representatives has voted for the Ryan budget that contains that genuine entitlement reform. And they did that knowing that they would get demagogued as, oh, you're against old people. Remember the, the, the ad that was done showing a Paul Ryan lookalike pushing a grandmother in a wheelchair off a cliff? That's the kind of stuff they dealt with, but they won in 2012 and won in 2014. That was in the House. Now, it's going to be interesting what's going to happen in the Senate. Uh, will they follow suit now that Republicans have control? Will they lash themselves to the mast and, and commit themselves to genuine entitlement reform? Now, of course, you know, I say entitlement reform. We do have discretionary spending. Many of those things should just be done away with or devolve back to the state and local level. Don't need to spend much time on that. And then, of course, the real challenge is, is how do you sustain and maintain any kind of fiscal discipline? Because even that long list of countries that I showed uh, where they had multi-year periods of spending restraint, some of them, like Ireland, then went completely off the rails uh, years later, and all the progress they made uh, was undermined. And that's why I think a cap on spending in the long run, sort of what, what Switzerland did with, uh, with its so-called debt break, not a balanced budget amendment, which oftentimes, especially we see this in the states, balanced budget requirements are just an excuse to raise taxes for the politicians. What makes Switzerland's spending cap so critical is that it puts the focus exactly where it should be. Government cannot grow faster than the private sector in Switzerland. This is what's happened to government spending relative to GDP in Switzerland ever since the debt break, the spending cap, uh, went into effect. So here are the things I want to look at in 2015. This will tell me whether or not my optimism is warranted. What's going to happen? to the spending caps and the sequester. And this gets into the question about the defense budget. A lot of Republicans are very nervous about sequestration and the spending caps because it doesn't allow them to spend as much on defense as they want to. Now, we won this battle a couple of years ago when we got the sequester, even though there were some Republicans willing to sell out, bust the spending caps, raise taxes, you name it. That's going to be a big fight this year, though. Obama, in his budget, already said, hey, we'll give you Republicans more defense spending if you give me more domestic spending. So there's a very much of a devil's bargain on the table that some Republicans will want to take. Will we stop them from taking that bad deal? There's also a proposal, hey, let's raise gas taxes. And a lot of Republicans, especially on the Transportation Committee, who can raise lots of money by doling out loot for different transportation projects, a lot of Republicans are susceptible to raising the gas tax to finance more Washington-centric uh, control of transportation in America. And then, of course, as I already said, will the Senate Republicans follow the House Republicans in at least having a vote in favor of the right kind of entitlement reform, which presumably then would commit them to doing it in 2017 when there might be a president who will follow suit and give us a chance to actually save the country. So how do we avoid a Greek future? Pretty simple, not easy, 
but simple. First, you have to correctly identify the problem. We're not trying to balance the budget. We're trying to shrink the role of the federal government, which would have the effect of balancing the budget, but focus on the disease, not the symptom. If I have a headache and I go to the doctor, the doctor says, oh, Dan, you have a brain tumor. I don't want him to give me aspirin for my headache. Well, maybe I do, but I'm going to be much more focused on, hey, deal with the real underlying problem. So we have to figure out how to bend that cost curve of government down. By the way, you see what I'm doing here? This is what's called an Alabama PowerPoint slide. That's, that's an honor of Ed Crane there. And ultimately, and this gets back to what John Allison said, it really almost is an ethical issue. We have to convince people that liberty is better than dependency. Uh, so thank you very much. I'll be happy to answer questions if I have some time. Uh, just raise your hand and we'll try to circle people uh, around to you relatively quickly. We have a... We have, a, we have one question over there, and, uh, and feel free to raise your hand so we can direct people and get as many questions in as possible. Yes, hi, thank you. Um, my question would be, how, what would you be your plan of attack uh, for convincing people of the, the moral argument of reducing the scope and size of government? Um, what's the plan of attack for winning this moral argument against big government? Um, I don't know. If I, if I knew that question, I would be implementing it already. Uh, when I give speeches and do TV interviews and stuff like that, I do throw in the moral argument, but I'm always sort of showing the practical thing. Here are countries that are following the route of big government that never ends well. So, so even I mostly focus on the practical arguments because I suspect that's how you reach most, most people. But always in my speeches, uh, and even when I'm doing you know, sort of the shorter TV interviews and things like that, I do try to make, you know, whether it's making the constitutional point of the vision of our founding fathers of a limited central government, whether it's sort of making the ethical argument that Greece can't be saved because now everyone thinks it's government's job to take care of them, tuck them in at night, wipe the drool off their chin. So I try to throw in the moral argument, but I confess I'm, I'm open to suggestions because I think we reach some people that way. We, we probably reach more people with the practical arguments, but at the end of the day, I don't think the practical arguments get us where we need to be permanently. Uh, so the moral argument's there. I'm just not smart enough <laughs> to figure out how to do it. And then it looks like someone a little bit farther up. Alex Peterson of Peterson Family Law. Thank you for taking my question. What interplay does the monetary policy and the Federal Reserve's procedures have with these suggestions for resolution? Um, well, obviously, monetary policy is huge, and you have all these countries all around the world doing their various versions of QE, uh, and what you really need is to have George Selgin and some of our monetary people here who could wax poetic at great length about all these issues. I've done my best over the years to stay away from monetary policy. Um, to the extent that I have commented on it, I simply made the point that, that all, the QE, all the QE in the world is like pushing on a string. If you have fundamental problems of government consuming too much of a nation's economic output and tax rates that are so high that you're penalizing people from being productive and a regulatory burden that is just you know, weighing down entrepreneurs in the private sector, no amount of easy money is going to solve the problem. 
Uh, so, so, so to the extent that I weigh in on those issues, I simply try to get politicians to understand whether or not you like QE or, or don't like QE, you have to deal with these problems in the so-called real economy of too much spending taxes and regulation. Uh, but I would encourage you to go to the website because with George Selgin and the rest of the team at our Center for Monetary Reform, I think no think tank in America is, uh, is as strong as we are on those issues. Back there. How would you suggest we reform entitlements? How would we reform entitlements? Well, in the, in the Republican budget for the last four years, again, stemming from the good work, largely of people at Cato, uh, what they're proposing for Medicaid is to block grant it. Basically, give it back to the states, just like we did with welfare reform in the 1990s, then cap the outlays, uh, and basically say, OK, states, deal with it. Now, compared to a federal entitlement where spending is projected to rise 8% a year, a cap and a block grant where spending grows at basically CPI plus one, that's progress. Now, I ultimately would like to see the block grants phased out and let states simply decide whatever, to whatever degree they want to do means-tested programs, they're responsible for raising and spending the money. But in terms of what's being proposed in Congress, it's a block grant for Medicaid and then a growth in the block grant at CPI plus one, which is huge progress over an 8% baseline growth. And for Medicare, they basically want to turn it into something akin to what politicians have, uh, a, a voucher, where everybody gets a certain pile of money every year, adjusted for health and age, and they go out and they buy a health care plan that best suits their needs, which is exactly how politicians get to get their health care through the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. And again, the, the voucher would then be at CPI plus one, uh, so in the long run, that will yield considerable savings compared to an 8% baseline growth of leaving the current system on autopilot. Those are the two big health care entitlements. That's what they've had in the Ryan budget. They haven't dealt with Social Security, at least not in the Ryan budget. It's in Paul Ryan's roadmap plan. But frankly, the health care entitlements are driving those, remember those horrible numbers from BIS, OECD, and IMF? That's being driven by the health care programs. And of course, a lot of those estimates were made before Obamacare, so, so those numbers are actually worse today. But again, you can take the Obamacare subsidies, put them inside the Medicaid block grant, and deal with some of the long-run fiscal problems. You don't necessarily solve the other problems caused by Obamacare that way, but you do make progress on the fiscal side. But uh, assign a probability that the overall change you're advocating is actually likely to happen? How likely is it that, that we'll actually solve our problems, and how likely is it we need to buy uh, land in the Appalachians and stock up on ammo? Uh, I, don't, I, I guess I've always been a pessimist. Most libertarians are pessimistic. <laughs> We look at things that happen. We see people getting corrupted by big government. We see politicians doing the wrong thing, even when they know it's the wrong thing. But I don't know. I, I, I guess everything that's happened in the last five years or so, the, the fiscal breakdown of Europe, uh, Obama's overreach, I, 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 don't, I, I actually have hope. Uh, I actually think that these people in Washington are sobered up. And you no, know, are, are they perfect? By no means. But I think that enough of them realize something has to be done on these big issues that we probably have at least a 50-50 chance of, a, of a getting real entitlement reform, real fiscal restraint uh, sometime in the next two or three years. 
maybe I'm just being naive. Maybe this is just how I keep myself going every day, uh, you know, trying to get reform in Washington. And, uh, and by the way, I'm very, very thankful for people like you in this room who make it possible for me to basically do what I would do as a hobby and actually get paid for it. Grossly inadequate pay, of course, uh, but nonetheless, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. I get to fight for liberty uh, on a daily basis, and I actually do think we can win. And I guess that's my note that I have to stop now. Thank you very much.